gonna die. The only question is how you check out. Do you want it on your feet? Or on your fucking knees? Begging. I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Let's fight it. Hello, welcome to episode three of the Empathy Machine podcast. I'm Andrew Ford, and joining me, as always, is my co-host... Josh Ickes. What are we talking about tonight? Well, for episode three, mm-hmm. fittingly enough, we're talking about Alien 3. That makes sense, I yeah. think, because mm-hmm. we did the first two, and then now we're doing... That makes sense. Okay. That's Yeah, that's generally how these things work. You, you get a one, a two, and a three in there. Yeah. Also, I love them so much. I do too. Yeah. For those of you who aren't familiar with Alien 3, I hope you're familiar with it because we, you know, we're going to spoil some stuff. Generally, here's the rough synopsis. After her last encounter, Ripley crash lands on Fiorina, Fury 161, a maximum security prison. When a series of strange and deadly events occur shortly after her arrival, Ripley realizes that she brought along an unwelcome visitor. I wonder... I wonder, Josh, what that visitor could be. I, I think it's like a cousin that invites themselves to stay after a family get together. You think my first guess was was Jones Jonesy? Aw, yeah. I, I don't. I mean, not you know these guys. They don't seem like cat people. So I kind of hate to think what they would do to a cat, but they there's do a, have a dog. <laughs> there's a lot of delousing going on. Yes. In this place. Alien Three is it's from 1992, which puts it about six years after Aliens. Mm-hmm. In, in real life how much time has passed in ripley's world do you remember Oof. she's asleep for a while i'm trying to think yeah they don't i don't think it's it's not as big a gap as it was from alien to aliens because that was like 57 years yeah i think the, the the fact that we don't know is part of what i think do they say it i don't know now this is gonna bother me this is the thing that bothers me every time okay cool we talked about this before the podcast <laughs> excellent now we have a thing when people don't get facts right, and then they're easy facts, and someone's listening, and they fucking know, uh-huh. and we're gonna we're the worst. We're the worst people. We're the two worst people ever. The worst <laughs> ones in real time in Earth time mm-hmm. came out ninety two. Written by David Geiler, Walter Hill, Larry Ferguson. They worked from a script or from a story by Vincent Ward. Mm-hmm. Vincent Ward. I was not familiar with the name. Probably best known for directing uh, What Dreams May Come a few years later. The Robin Williams Weepy that introduced me at, a, at that uh, tender age of 18 or 19 to uh, very mopey magical realism. Is this the one where he bathes in spaghetti? Bathes in spaghetti? That's Patch Adams. I'm making a Patch Adams joke. Oh, okay. Okay. You don't remember that? He has a big spaghetti bath for like the old lady with dementia because that's how... <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I've, I've, <laughs> I'm sure it's a fine film. It's probably heartwarming as hell, but I just can't remember it. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, what dreams might come, he goes into a painting. I remember that. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. So it looked like a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, it was beautiful. We have, once again, like, Geiler and, and Walter Hill kind of contributing to this this story. Mm-hmm. This movie's a little controversial. Let's go. <laughs> well, so the story by Vincent Ward that they worked from, that they more or less stuck to, at the, uh, the, the bones of it, it seems like. But one of the big conceits, he's, he's a very... 
he's a fantasist. He's very, most, all of his stuff's very fanciful, visually uh, imaginative. Like, I think his first movie, The Navigator, had something to do with uh, people time traveling back to the Middle Ages or something. And then What Dreams May Come is about a guy in the afterlife. And he's like, you know, you can go into like a painting and play around with the colors and throw them at people and all that stuff. It's, it really is very similar to Patch Adams, actually, when you break it down. Uh, but he also did Map of the Human Heart, which is just this big sweeping romance. That was what he made essentially instead of Alien 3. His premise naturally followed suit. It was going to take place on a planet made of wood populated by monks. It's basically just like they they live on a planet made of wood. They had, There was going to be like a big, I guess, a big action sequence that took place in a library where they're running from an alien and the library is like enormous. And uh, there's all these like ladders and, you know, basically lots of wooden things. I think it's interesting the way they were able to keep certain aspects of it for this because the 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 setup that remains is it's a prison planet and uh, but they are very there's like a an odd uh, religion like a very monastic religion uh, i wonder if you want to talk a little bit more about that yeah so first of all like i think it's really interesting that it came from uh, the things that they kept which which were the uh, it's an all-male planet. Ripley is like the first person, first female that they've seen in like a decade. Mm-hmm. And there is this like push-pull between these guys trying to uh, find order in their lives and find you know purpose in a higher power and kind of their baser animal instincts. Mm-hmm. That's a weird through line to pick up from the early draft. Like... If you watch the behind the scenes stuff, everybody talks about the fact that they don't understand how the other planet would have worked. This this big kind of wooden medieval planet would have worked, how it would have been constructed, which I would have just liked to seen that thing. That sounds awesome. Like, you know, towering Gothic cathedrals, but in space. It just kind of seems yeah. fascinating in the. The whole opening they describe, one of the monks would have gone up to the top of the tower and stuck his head out through the the edge of the atmosphere to look into deep space. Mm -hmm. That is utterly fantastic and ridiculous and seems it would have been a lot of fun. So they took kind of the, I don't know, emotional core of this, kind of the soul-searching aspect, and grafted it into a Nine Inch Nails video? essentially that's yes yeah i guess they, yeah the but more yeah downward spiral was what that was like right around this time yeah oh see now i'm i'm pulling out other references oh, yeah. yes i'm gonna i'm just gonna google it because i don't want to be yeah it came out in 94 i'm i'm pretty wrong there this is still pretty firmly pretty hate machine era <laughs> good yes nails. but still yes industrial yes yeah. More specific. I mean, he Venture did the Express Yourself video for Madonna, which is all. Yeah, super industrial. Yeah, I don't think we didn't even get into the fact that this is David Fincher's first feature film. This is true. Yes. And his, I think from all indication, his personal least favorite of his films. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, it was his first and by a lot of accounts, almost his last. Yes. We've talked a little bit about how we, we you know, watched a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. And how the movie was a little controversial. And uh, that's because, like, it was his first movie and, like, first feature film. Big studio movie. Not everybody agreed on what it was supposed to be. They kind of locked themselves into a release date before they had a script. Then they kind of locked themselves into, like, a start date for shooting before they had a script. Then they kind of started shooting before they had a script. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. And it was 
it seems like it was it would have been a nightmare for anybody right if even someone as as who ultimately proved to be as talented as david fincher got even even someone as talented as him got uh, caught up in the studio machinery and uh chewed up and it just seems like it was even some of the the footage that, that they have of the behind the scenes on set is like he seems combative and kind of just angry frustrated calls everybody at fox a bunch of idiots into the boom mic at one point right <laughs> Right. I, I can imagine that scenario being, you know, very, very difficult. A lot of the film that he tried to make still exists. And it's been put together in this assembly cut because he doesn't want to be involved anymore with this, from what I gather. And right. I think from what everybody understands, so he doesn't speak on any behind the scenes stuff other than in archival footage. I don't think he did press for the movie. I don't even know if it didn't get, I feel like it would have been included if, in the set if he'd done any real press. It's just all behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. So if you know anything about David Fincher, he is, I don't know, a, a perfectionist to the extreme, I would say. I, I know we've talked a lot in the, the previous two episodes about how kind of precise and technical these directors are. Mm -hmm. And that way, Fincher is like right in line, except for, you know, he, he goes to Kubrickian levels of insanity i feel for what he does but also what he does is so damn perfect so often mm -hmm. you kind of start to understand it and i feel like seeing you know this film understanding that it's his his first time like really trying to flex those muscles over this long shoot schedule over this long running time and try to figure out how to work with a crew this large and this many departments because mm -hmm. he had this this fantastic background doing like you said these madonna videos and ads in the like the 80s and early 90s for Levi's and Converse and Nike, Pepsi, Revlon, Sony, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola and Pepsi, right? He worked both sides of the of the Cola Wars. Like the Verizon guy who works for Sprint now. He's a fucking turncoat. Yes. And <laughs> Chanel. So yeah. everything from what Rick Springfield and his his commercial for the American Cancer Society. PSA that shows a, a fetus that looks kind of like the the star child in 2001 but it's smoking a cigarette mm. tell people about like you know that your your smoking affects your baby it's this fantastic very technical stuff that he had been doing this whole time i love a lot of time people second records because it feels like that's where they have to dig deep cuz the first one you had 20 30 years to write that second one you've had a few months <laughs> and <laughs> Because of his background, this feels kind of like a second record to me. It's his first feature film, but he's been around film sets for years. He worked at ILM. Mm -hmm. what, was, what was his first uh, his credit over there? Uh, his first credit was on uh, Return of the Jedi as like an effects special effects cinematographer and he, or camera operator. And then he uh, he did matte painting photography for Neverending Story and a little film called Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom. There you go. <laughs> I need like bullet points. Like we'll, we're going to figure out how to structure this properly by we, I mean me. Cause I'm a dummy tonight, I guess it's, <laughs> it's uh, going to be beautiful. Once it all happens, he had an effects background and then he did, he went into commercial photography and, you know, shooting commercials, shooting music videos. I think it is really interesting when you say, look, you look at it like his second album kind of because of that, when you compare it to albums, like I think about a first album, like as being very personal. So I think about a first film being like independent in that way. Right. So I think that's another reason to kind of look at it in a different way. It's like, no, they signed to a major label and now they, like a major label picked him up and because they're really successful right. and now they have to churn out something. And it, he kind of is up against like what he actually wants to say with this film and like what he wants to contribute to the franchise, mm -hmm. which seems to be just to turn it into like an absolute hellscape, like a nihilistic hellscape. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> which is kind of what you know what the assembly cut really gets right and why that's like infinitely preferable uh, at least to me to the theatrical cut although they both are kind of hellscapes like they, they both kind of are tough but basically what he's trying to put in there and then what the studio wants which isn't ever especially clear Mm-hmm. They're not asking for like a happy ending. Right. They're not asking for like the edges to be sanded down, especially outside of the very opening where, uh, you know, after Ripley's recovered and then they do like the autopsies on uh, Newt and Hicks. I believe that was cut out of the theatrical cut or at least toned down uh, yeah. because in the assembly cut, it's just bone saw grinding on Newt's little uh, chest bone. Yes. It's a little, <laughs> it's a little uh, intense. The parts where Fincher's story shines through are the parts that work the best and the parts Mm -hmm. that seem to obfuscate that or the parts where, you know, in the theatrical cut, it kind of, they excise huge like swaths of plot. They replace a certain, like they replace the origin of the chestburster from the, the, I would assume is the initial plan slash the assembly cut. They replace that with a slightly different one. Like there's odd changes and changes that don't make sense. Changes that seem to be made to like tone down some of the intensity of right. the gore it's a shame and it's uh, you know we're lucky that there, since there's multiple cuts of every other film they wanted to you know like why, why not do another cut of this they did give us the assembly cut uh the people at fox did release that so i guess what's your opinion on the on the two cuts i kind of I, th- I feel like we kind of agree though it's interesting i think to watch the theatrical because looking back now it feels almost like somebody doing a a Fincher impression because it's theatrical is, is Fincher esque, but mm-hmm. it feels way too fast to be a, a Fincher film. The cutting, at least, and mm-hmm. uh, we talked before about how the the assembly cut definitely you feel the runtime of it, but the cutting, I mean, Fincher is very precise. He does these like long shots, and they're very intentional. Whereas this feels a little bit like rushed and kind of uh, as if, okay, this is the best we had at the moment. So they kind of went with it sometimes, Mm -hmm. but the compositions and what goes on in the shots is very Fincher-esque. So it's this weird dynamic of once again, seeing somebody like really stretch those, those muscles to begin with. Also the industrial look, the grittiness, the tone, and kind of like you said, the, the nihilistic existential angst, (laughs) <laughs> that comes through in the film is definitely like that's David Venture to the core. It makes sense in comparison with, you know, him going forward and making seven, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they seem very much of a piece. The thing is the assembly cut has so much more of that. <laughs> and I know we're talking in kind of generalities here, but it is like just the bleak feeling of it. it it's just so much more desolate and hopeless feeling. And it leads to this inevitable conclusion of, uh, you know, Ripley's sacrifice. And I love the fact that you see it coming from so far away. It's not Mm -hmm. treated as a twist at all. It's not like a big reveal. I I feel like it's circling the drain. And the whole whole movie is this discussion about if you're already circling the drain, what do you do? Right. I think uh, Charles S. Dutton as kind of the, the leader, the religious leader of the of the prisoners on this planet is he the one that gets the the speech about you can die on your feet or die on your knees yeah he gets to invent the uh, samuel l jackson deep blue sea speech exactly yep. yeah <laughs> it's interesting like so we've talked a lot about fincher being a perfectionist yes i wonder how much of that was in evidence before this movie and how much came about on his later projects as a result of the experience making this movie 
I'd be very curious to, I mean, there's a lot of things I'd like, I mean, yeah, we, I'm sure we'd both love to sit down and have dinner with David Fincher and pick his brain, yeah. obviously, but that's something I'd be curious to, cause I feel like that's pretty, I just uh, armchair psychoanalysis here. I could see that stemming from, you know, the battles that he had on the set here. It, yeah. It feels like he learned how to ask for things mm-hmm. and how to pick his battles a lot better going forward. Mm-hmm. It seems like he got more like Hitchcock going forward where he kind of out clevered the studio more or less most of the time, rather than, you know, trying to be in direct uh, conflict and competition with them. Mm-hmm. He's still a little bit punk at this point. Yeah. Well, he's, he's 29 years old. I mean, yeah, he's super young. <laughs> yeah. In general, where do you rank this with the alien films? I would say overall, it's probably, I mean, so far it would be my third favorite, but only because okay. if we had a complete version of what Fincher wanted to do, I don't know. Like, I think it would be on par with the first two. The first two are very complete, concise visions, and they're very singular. They each stand on their own. Mm-hmm. And this one, I feel like this one stands on its own, but it doesn't quite like it. it like it, it functions as its own movie. Like if you just, you could just start it with Ripley at the beginning and go from there and you know, maybe a little less so than with aliens, but the premise sustains, you know, it sets itself up. It's a self-contained kind of deal, largely self-contained anyway. But I feel like there's some things here that just wouldn't have worked even in his version, like his okay. preferred version. I think there's some stuff with the, um, the alien specifically where it's like running that kind of just doesn't, it just doesn't look good. Okay. There's like where it's running through the hallways really quick. Like the effects, it's just it really it really takes you out of the movie when you see that because it's probably the effect that's aged the the worst of any of like anything in the series so far. It's early '90s. It's not quite like it's it's not CGI. It's a model that they're like a little maquette they're using, uh, and then they're like matting it in. I think, mm-hmm. and then it's you know so it it it, it, it looks like realistic, like it's moving realistically, but it it just looks definitely like not part of the scene and it stands out in really stark contrast to the alien anytime it's a guy in a suit in this movie because it's like the slimiest like grunt like just like disgusting is like looking i like this whole movie is like just like gross one of the things that i like so much about the assembly cut is the way that we're introduced to ripley because in the theatrical cut it's sort of like she's just on the ship and she survived when it crashed her pod didn't get like damaged but in the in the assembly cut it's like she washes up covered like like from like she's survived an oil slick like she's covered in like maggots and like black water or whatever like some kind of tar like she just washes up on the shore and they bring her inside from there and then they go back and salvage the ship right but i really like that there's something very like primal about the like the idea of you know washing up on the shore coming out of the water onto land it sets up the tone of the film as being like just disgusting <laughs> from frame one like this place is gross there's bugs everywhere Like, everybody's slimy. You know, I'd shave my head, too. Right. And then, I guess, they mine, like, some kind of ore on the planet. I don't really know that they go into too much detail about it, but there's, like, these big, you know, smelting stations. (laughs) All all that, the the fact that it's a, like, disused prison planet, Mm -hmm. it's very strange, and I feel like it's hand-waved a little bit in the whole, like, yeah, these guys wanted to stay here. I don't know. It doesn't entirely makes sense but i i don't know i've always felt that this movie is just an excuse to have some really cool weird alien shit and 
uh, these existential crisis conversations. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I think that the, the, the setting, this movie is so nineties, like (laughs) every, like you said, just the, the grunginess and kind of the, the yellow tone to it. Mm -hmm. uh, Almost it, it, it does. It evokes uh, Nirvana's uh, smells like teen spirit video for Mm -hmm. me. Like that, that kind of glowy yellow, gross, everything is nasty Mm -hmm. uh, in this. And I do like kind of like the idea that, uh, you know, James Cameron's director's kind of aliens is just more bad road for the characters to go down. And Mm -hmm. it's like, it's harder for you to sit through because you identify with them more. The assembly cut of this is kind of the same where there's definitely pacing issues and not everything exists even that should to make it work. But you get the feeling of this world just being so, it's just despairing. It's really, (laughs) it's horrible and sad. And I like the fact that these guys on this planet have um, invented their own meaning for life. Like, Mm -hmm. that's how they stay there. And some of them get caught up in the dramas within their own society. And some of them kind of look you know, towards spirituality and things like that. There's something about it, like, especially I think seeing this when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. checked those boxes for me. Picture me reading Jim Morrison poetry and just getting into like No Exit and Nietzsche and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then seeing this film, like there's some, <laughs> there's something about that whole teenage angst that is really exemplified in this movie. If the general premise of the first one is right that they they make men as afraid of rape as women would be, mm-hmm. that's kind of allegorical in that way. And the second one is all about motherhood in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. What do you what do you think that this one is about? If does this one have a thesis statement? Is it cohesive enough in kind of the two butchered versions we have to have one a thesis statement? If there's a thesis statement here, I think it's what I mean. It gets very, it gets pretty dark pretty fast. It's uh, what, what's the uh, how do you how do you live in a world where there's no God? Uh-huh. Uh huh. There's but and there's only the devil, you know, in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. the, 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 a lot of that's um, I like that. and they cut they cut this character like to the bone in uh, the theatrical cut, but Gallic, uh, played oh, yeah. by uh, Paul McGann, is like the perfect encapsulation of like what this movie's going for like he he's a guy who's you know he's a little not there like he's not all there mentally and i think in the behind the scenes stuff he even says he was he was sort of coached to approach it as like a charles manson type character and he was doing an accent and they were they had to like reshoot it because the accent was terrible (laughs) so they're just like don't do an accent but have like the effect down but i like that idea like he's like someone who's just he's like not he's unhinged and he sees this thing that's even like so awful and so incomprehensible based on his already like left of center worldview that he just sort of essentially like worships it, like deifies it in that way. He reminded me of like uh, Renfield as a character. Very, yeah, definitely. And that's, a, that's that Fincher picks up from the first alien where Ash is talking about, he's like gives it, has that whole speech about how the alien's a perfect creature. Right. You know, it's just, you know, very like uh, specifically designed. I mean, People talking about the alien in the bonus features <laughs> sound kind of similar. They're like, I think James Cameron on the stuff on aliens, he says like, it's the perfect uh, monster. Cause it's like mostly teeth. Right. <laughs> like, it's kind of like, yeah, like, and uh, there's no eyes. So you feel like there's nothing, there's no window to the soul. There's no, there's, you know, so I think Venture really explores that here 
And I think it's, I think that's the stuff that's the most successful. Like this base, this most sequels. And I think aliens suffered from this to a degree where they sort of take the, the, the xenomorph, the alien, and they demystify it a little bit, or they de, they like take away some of the fear. They take away some of the unknowability of it. Right. Which definitely happens when you turn it into an action movie. But then he sort of reclaims that here and like turns it back into this, like, I mean, it's not unstoppable in a world like he presents a world that's already horrible. And he's like, this is only going to like this thing's going to make it so much worse. And he, he turns it into the devil. I mean, it's figuratively the devil here. Yeah. And going back and forth between like alien with where you have one of the creatures who is kind of ill. I mean, it's it's not the, the most high functioning mm-hmm. that we see the xenomorphs. And I think it's even you know talked about that it that it's not entirely healthy if you if you watch the behind the scenes stuff or I might have gotten that from uh, one of the the books or um, uh, comic books or something that I read about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then in Aliens, you have I don't know a bajillion of them <laughs> or two bajillion. Yeah. They become cannon fodder, and in this one, we're back down to one singular alien. Right. What do you feel about like that kind of trajectory? I personally, I like it better with one alien, one foe. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is like, we're back into like slasher movie territory here where aliens is more like a zombie film. Yeah. If you're going to make the horror comparisons, right? Where there's just hordes of them and there it's a, it's a wave that's going to consume you. Yeah. We're back down to one that is, I mean, it's, it's jaws. It's Michael Myers. It's Jason. It's like, this thing wants to tear you apart. It mm-hmm. wants to consume you. And in the first film, I feel that it wants to consume you and and breed and use your body. In this movie, I feel like it wants to eat your soul. <laughs> it wants to take your reason for living from you. Like, that's how fucked up this, this one is. I definitely think this comes from a desire on, or maybe even an unconscious desire to reconcile the creature in part one with the one in part two, because in part two, there's, there's a million of them, but they're still presented as this like unstoppable force in theory, you know, like there's so many of them, they're going to swarm, you know, and right. take you out. And this one is, it's interesting. It's like, I feel like it plays up the animalistic, the more primal, like instinctual nature of the creature, which may be why they wanted it to be born from an animal instead uh-huh. of a person, which is another, that's a significant difference between this that separates this from the other films or the first two films yeah i don't know i i didn't ask you what so where would you put this in the continuum where would you rank it for as far as like if you know i mean rankings boo well they're all great but yeah right (laughs) i like it better than aliens i like it better Mm -hmm. than either cut of aliens like i said there's something if you can tell about my um like nostalgic rambling about what the early 90s (laughs) were, Mm -hmm. were like to a teenage me it is there's something about it when I started watching it again that it just it hones in on that that place in my lizard brain that I just responded to this movie so much more. I respected Aliens a lot more this time when I watched it, but when I watch mm-hmm. Alien 3, Aliens seems like jingoistic and kind of rah-rah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's and I, you know, re- watching it I recognize it's it is at least slightly more sophisticated than that for the most mm-hmm. part. But this, there's just something about the utter bleakness and hopefulness 
that's presented in this movie through, you know, like the alien. And then I guess Charles S. Dutton's character, Dylan, mm-hmm. definitely, you know, I, I think presents some kind of light. Um, I also think uh, Charles Dance. Oh, he's so good in this. Yeah, he's fucking fantastic. His back and forths with Ripley, it's, I, I just really like the way that they interact as characters, personally. I mean, what, what do you feel about Ripley getting a love interest, for lack of a better term? Uh, that was about to jump in because I was like, okay. I love the way they handle it here because okay. in um, Aliens, it's, it's hinted at that it's Hicks and it's like basically it's Hicks. Right. The, the whole idea of Aliens is sort of recreating the nuclear family. Like right. just to get into like abstract, you know, terms. That's basically what's going on there. But this is like, like she's had a rough couple of like <laughs> she's had a rough like century at this point. Yes, mostly sleeping. Then this movie doesn't make things any easier for her and where she is. I mean, she the, by that point in the film, like you know, you know that it's not like this place is not great for her. It's a bunch of horny dudes who say they're not going to try to fuck you, but probably will. Right. And it's, it's just, it's nice. And like the one actual nice guy, which is, a, you know, that's a, that's a tough character to write and a t- very tough performance, I think, to give. I mean, Charles Dance nails it. And I think just that whole interaction where he's trying to find out more about why, you know, what happened and uh, why she wants to do an autopsy. Mm-hmm. on the on newt and hicks and she's just like maybe we could just like fuck instead that'd be cool and it's, right. it's great and it's just so frank and it treats uh it treats uh sex in a very adult way which is like the opposite of like the polar opposite of aliens like aliens is very chaste by comparison now james cameron knows his way around a sex scene like the terminator is great like it has a great like scene with uh, michael bean and linda hamilton like it, it's, he's not Spielberg where he can some, he can someone sometimes come off as skittish or uncomfortable when he's filming sex scenes. He can do it. And, but that wasn't yeah. the goal of aliens. It's important because it also reclaims like her sexuality right. in a way, because they, she's a mother figure exclusively in the second one. Right. And it's like, well, a mother has to, you know, have a husband, I guess. So let's have the guy, you know, it felt, it feels, it felt kind of arbitrary in that. I mean, it's the kind of movie it is. I don't mean to slight aliens to praise alien three, but Fuck yeah, I'm doing it. Right. <laughs> but yeah, you, you go ahead. Cameron gets a little, I feel, I mean, he made Titanic. He's he's sappy when it comes to yeah. uh, even, you know, the, the, the love story in Terminator. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, um, it's a little saccharine and it's very sweet and I like that in Terminator. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a different kind of story, I think. Yeah. It's definitely a more hopeful story i don't think that he wants to invoke like soul searching or fuck with you as much as fincher does yeah there's a couple documentaries like online documentaries that we'll we'll link to here about david fincher one of them is called and the other way is wrong by every frame of painting which is tony Zhao. is that the guy's name yes yeah okay so first of all if you haven't seen any episode of every frame of painting you should absolutely watch any episode in the series that strikes your interest he does what we do or what we hope to do in about seven minutes, generally, mm-hmm. <laughs> through his video essays. Thereby implying he's better at it than we are. So yeah, he's fucking cool. fantastic. Yeah. He's great. <laughs> and his one on Fincher is basically about Fincher's kind of perfectionism and the fact that Fincher thinks everybody is a pervert and everybody wants to watch. And everybody, like, mm-hmm. you get the idea that Fincher wants to play with you as an audience member. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like that's what allows this movie to be what it is. I feel like 
you give most other directors this same task and I don't know the movie is is milk toast it's it's bland it's it doesn't kind of aim for the same jugular as Fincher does I think most people would have shied away from the fact that you kill off two beloved characters mm-hmm. well two and a half if you count an android in the the opening of the movie the entire premise of the film requires that you kill off these characters and a lot of fans hate it because of that mm-hmm. like they are off the boat right away because you spent all this time in the last movie rooting that this family gets together and in this film it just gets ripped away mm-hmm. it's like there is no safety net ripley is on her own again and when she connects with Charles Dance, basically they have sex and they have these um, discussions about uh, what it means to be a good person, essentially. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's kind of their, their whole relationship. And I don't know, there's something about the way that that works that... Um, Personally, I can track that through the filmography of David Fincher. Like, that all makes sense. And I like the fact that the sex scene is not a scene. Right. <laughs> it's it's great. I mean, because their, their attraction is intellectual. Right. It's not... I mean, there is physical attraction, and that's how the, kind of the topic is raised. But it's an intellectual attraction that... I think it's very interesting. You mentioned fans being upset with the way, you know, because I feel like just to just to try to wrap up the the stuff with the, you know, the sex scene and Ripley as a character here, it's also important to note that like a lot of other filmmakers or anyone else who took this story, their next like step would be like, oh, and he dies and she's sad. And right. even Ridley Scott, when in Alien, he had, there was a plan that she would have had an affair with Dallas, Tom Skerritt's character. And when she sees him cocooned at the end, she's like devastated. And there's that, like, the, the goal is to add this, like, emotional weight to it. And because that's not in the original version of Alien, it's only in the director's cut. Right. But it's still downplayed even in the director's cut, so you don't, it's not necessarily that they had a relationship, but that just would have been bad. <laughs> and I'm glad right. that it isn't, it's all, like, what-if territory for that particular scenario. And I'm glad that here, like, you see, like, what makes her a strong character is that she just fucking keeps going. That's what's kept her going through all these movies. And, and we can talk a lot about, I mean, I talk, we talked a lot about her performance last time in Aliens, but I mean, she's just incredible here too. Yeah. And I think she's allowed to take the character places that are way different from any other action heroine we've ever seen. I can't even think of another, like usually like there's, hero is allowed to sell, like, like a male hero is allowed to like self-sacrifice. Right. Like Bruce Willis at the end of Armageddon, you know, yes, or like exactly. Super, Superman at the end of Batman versus Superman. You know, there's stuff like that where it's like, uh, ugh. Sorry. Yeah, no, I know. I know. Okay. I like how that got an ugh, but Armageddon didn't. It means, it means that you, because, because oh. I think people have come around and they understand that Armageddon's a masterpiece. And I think yeah. you're one of those people. One of those movies makes me cry every single time I watch it. And the other one makes me vomit. So that's... we win Gracie. Or are you talking <laughs> about the animal crackers scene? Oh, come on. <laughs> Way down south. <laughs> but no, I wanted to talk about the stupid Neil Blomkamp alien five idea, whatever he was going to call it, uh-huh, where uh-huh. he was going to make a movie where Hicks and Newt were still alive. It would have been a follow-up to Aliens. And it would have ignored Alien 3 and Alien 4. And I'm assuming whatever happens with what whatever Ridley Scott's doing right now with the series, to which I am thrilled to report that that's not happening. And I'd also like to say, fuck you, Neil Blomkamp. <laughs> 
and anyone who anyone else who thinks it's a good idea to disavow Alien Three because this is like the most I've ever re- liked and related to the character of Ripley. Uh-huh. And I think any movie outside of like I'm trying to run away from this creature, she's just a complete person in this, even in right. the theatrical cut, way more than we ever get in the other movies. I really like the fact that she is not a. I don't want to say consistent, meaning that like she flip flops. Mm-hmm. But you see her struggle with the legacy of what she has had to do over the <laughs> over the last, I don't mm-hmm. know, 80 years or whatever it is. You know, she's strong. Mm-hmm. She rips apart Newt or she watches while Newt is ripped apart in front of her to mm-hmm. verify that there's no alien. But then when she discovers that she herself is pregnant with the alien, mm-hmm. like she knows what has to be done. But she's crying while she asks Dylan to you know, cave her skull in essentially. Mm-hmm. And that is such, you don't get that in most action movies. You know, mm-hmm. there's a reason I feel like the first Die Hard is just like this, this polarizing moment because John McClane is a badass through the entire film. And mm-hmm. then he cries while he's talking about his wife. He doesn't cry taking glass out of his feet. He cries talking about his wife and the mistakes that he made. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's the moment that gets you mm-hmm. the, the same thing here. They give her that same kind of agency as a person, and you get to see, like you said, like well-rounded and more of a complete character. It's fun in the next one when she's, you know, a genetically engineered badass. Like that's that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. The the first one, she's an ingenuitive final girl, and the second one, she's a mother doing what she has to do to protect her her kid. Essentially, mm-hmm. this one. I feel like she gets a lot more choices to make that result. And the fact that she kind of has to be dragged through them. She's, she's yeah. fighting on both sides of the, of the battle. I think a little bit there. Well, I was, I was just going to make a joke like, no, in aliens, she's doing what a patriarchal society would, would expect her to do. <laughs> but that's Ooh. That, Andrew that, Ford that's, with, with the hot take. I don't actually believe that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I believe, you know, I believe that it's the same character in all three. And I just yes. think it's very, you know, it, it's, it is interesting that this is, you know, this is essentially the end of the Ripley character because the clone in the next one is so different and yeah. in so many different ways. And it's another great performance, maybe her most interesting performance in the series. I've, I wouldn't say it's her best, but it's like, it's the one you're watching and you're constantly guessing like, what's she, what's she thinking? What's she doing? You don't really know what that character is, uh, which I think is part of what turns some people off about Alien Resurrection. Um, And I can understand, I mean, it's pretty distancing, especially when you, you know, invested in the character to this point, (laughs) if you go and expect her to still be alive, she's, you didn't watch alien three. Right. I don't, I don't know. I feel like I've hit a, I'm good with everything that we've said so far. I'm glad that we both love Ripley in this. I'm Mm -hmm. good to move on to the next chapter. Okay. I did have, (laughs) I did have one question for you. Okay. The cast, the, the motley crew of dudes Mm -hmm. who is on this planet that she crashes on is rich with character actors. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's everybody here is fantastic and would be like the second banana in another film. Right. Or like the one smart prisoner. But here you have everybody I feel like is so good. Like they work as a unit so well. Do you have like a, a favorite? Do you have like a standout? Do you have a, 
you know, a little scene or something that, that sticks out in your mind that one of these other people gets to do. We've praised Ripley to the, to the rafters. Right. Do you like anybody else in this cast? I mean, I think it's a great cast all around, but I definitely think, I mean, we talked about Golic already, but I think that's a great performance. It's kind of, it's definitely neutered by the theatrical cut, uh-huh. but you get a lot more and you get the full, like, and I, I believe it's in both versions where he just like, he stabs the guy in the neck and he just goes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Right. It's such a great like moment. <laughs> like it's like, no, it's, it's, it's just this like, you know, craziness. It's pretty wonderful to watch. I mean, yeah. So I would say, I would say Paul McGann does a great, uh, like definitely stands out to me. And uh, Charles Dance, we've talked about a lot. It's always good to see Pete Postlethwaite, but I can't, I can't pick out a specific moment of his that I love. I mean, there's some great stuff where they're like trying to seal the alien off and i remember he's like up next to the window and it like pokes through or something or it's like about to poke through like the like oh, the window yeah it, it smashes through and the hand is like reaching towards yeah him. yeah people's plate would have been is my my mvp okay of of the supporting cast i mean i kind of consider sigourney and charles dance as your leads essentially even though mm-hmm. he gets unceremoniously killed and kind of his role is taken up by charles s dutton as her protector yeah which he is also fantastic yeah yeah the pete postlethwaite's character of david he just he gets a couple really nice moments and uh, i remember kind of at the time that this came out what shortly after this as i read wikipedia (laughs) which is never wrong (laughs) Let's see. I'm just going to throw okay. out there to vamp. I really love him in the lost world. Yes. Okay. And you found yeah. it. <laughs> so, so, okay. The dude goes from alien three to in the name of the father, which he is fantastic in nominated for Academy award. Actually. I haven't seen that. Oh, oof. Yeah. Oofa okay. We're going to have to. Okay. So from that to usual suspects mm-hmm. and then Romeo and Juliet, like, yeah, He's got all these kind of great pivotal roles in these movies where it's like they need someone who can deliver in a moment. And he's always he's like the dude that they go to in the early to mid 80s or early to mid 90s to do this. Mm-hmm. And then after Romeo and Juliet or right around the same time, he's in Brassed Off, which is uh it's just another one f- I haven't seen, but you 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 just went right past Dragonheart, and uh, I don't want to stay here all day, but I do love Oof. Dragonheart. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's it's not entirely in my blind spot, but it's not one of that I sat down and actually watched. Yeah, uh, but I don't know. I guess I just kind of want to praise him as an actor. Yeah, to, to go from these super heavy or super wordy roles to he does very fun things as well, and. I don't know. He's got that British thing of never turning down a paycheck, which I feel like is mm-hmm. a British working actor. They, they don't seem as uh, presumptuous as American working actors. Yeah. Or as pretentious. Yeah. I forget who actually had the anecdote, but I mean, they it was right after, right around the time uh, he passed away. People say things like this when people pass away generally, but they said like, uh, like literally like the most accomplished, like the best actor they've ever worked with like that gave them the most in a scene was Pete Postlethwaite I just I forget who said it it's gonna it's gonna bug me now but and I you know you can see plenty of evidence of that here like he's he's the like I went through you know the cast list and I'm like he's the other guy that stands out like that's that's the one what's your uh what's your takeaway what do you want people they watch this movie 
then they go forward in their their own careers or their own endeavors. What what do you think that they should uh, take away from that? Um, I think that uh, life has no meaning, and uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no uh, other than that, you know, we've been praising and and discussing the methodologies of, of and the psychology of David Fincher this entire time, and I think it's uh, the key takeaway there is if you're if you're making a film like. And this is something that I've always struggled with when I've done stuff is like uh-huh. that voice saying like, who the fuck do you think you are? <laughs> like, right. Like, you know, you should, you should listen to other people. You should let, like, let other people like have, you know, they have better ideas than you, you know, that little voice that tells you you're not good enough. Basically, like if you are making anything, go all the way, like do you, <laughs> right. drive it like you stole it is what I said. Like just, <laughs> it's yours. Like, it. you know, it's, it, you just, you run it. And I feel like, I initially was thinking about it in terms of like, hey, if you get a big studio movie, like just fucking do it. Because the parts that we're talking about here aren't the, we're not talking about the movie. We're, t- we're talking about the movie as a David Fincher movie. We're talking about the parts, the things that he brought to it and the version that, the, the, the vision that he had for, mm-hmm. you know, that the assembly cut gives us a glimpse of at least. And I think, we're, and we're not talking about, you know, the, the we're definitely saying like the theatrical cut is kind of a bit of a mess. I mean, it's still, you can still glimpse, you know, it's still good. Right. Like it's not a bad movie. It's just, it's not what it could have been. So I think, I think that's the the general takeaway. It, it, it applies to anything you're making, whether it's a movie or a salad. <laughs> just wow. Do the best. That is, that is wide ranging. <laughs> uh, just, uh, is what you want to do. You have to have confidence in yourself that you know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I tell myself. And I should listen to more. It's a part. It's a voice. It's a voice in my head that I should listen to, but I listen to the other one too often. Okay. Uh. So, yeah, I want to piggyback and I guess compliment, but also kind of contradict your same impulse there. Okay. So, uh, I would think that you know the, the thing that I see is Fincher, who works so closely with his department heads mm-hmm. it's in order to get his vision across it's he literally can't do everything himself i feel like he probably dictates very closely to the people underneath him uh, or the people down the line what what it is that he wants to see and i feel like he started that here you know he started the movie working with jordan cronin with jordan worked on Let's see, movies going back to 1970? Mm-hmm. It looks like with Brewster McCloud. I mean, come on. Seriously. Like, <laughs> I just, real quick, it's the, uh-huh. it has one of the, my favorite jokes in okay. anything ever. Yes. And I can't spoil it, but it's the ending to a car chase. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. I yep. would never, I would never spoil it. And no. I, I, no one will watch that movie. <laughs> but if one person <laughs> watches that movie, and they get the laugh that I got out of it. Then it'll, yes. it'll have been worth it. I love it. But yes, um, he's, well, uh, Jordan Cronenworth worked with Ridley Scott too. Yes. He replaced uh, Derek Van Lent on Blade Runner, but he also worked on Altered States. Mm. Uh, but he did something, you know, a lot more realistic like Cutter's Way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, Peggy Sue Got Married. I mean, dude was all over the place. One of like the, I don't know, founding fathers of what I consider modern cinematography. Like he could do all kinds of stuff from super stylized to naturalistic. And Mm. I feel like the 
idea that Fincher would have worked with this guy and wanted to, it's really telling that the way that you get things done isn't necessarily that you have to do it all yourself or that you have to be like a dictator. Mm-hmm. It's that you, you pick people that are going to be in your team. So a film, you know, isn't a car. Like you can't drive it yourself. You have to have a, a crew. And I think Fincher has gotten better and better as he goes along at picking people who are going to be as exacting as he is. I mean, you can just go to his next film and I can't remember the the crew that it was that spent months working on the journals for the opening credits of seven. Oh yeah. But I remember that. Yeah. You have to have someone who is going to be that insane and that intense about it to match, to, to come up to Fincher's level. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he had a good start with jo- Jordan Cronin with who unfortunately was ill with um, Parkinson's. I believe he died just a, a few years later. The interesting thing is, I mean, he was replaced then with uh, Alex Thompson, who also has a fantastic resume, Mm -hmm. also worked with Ridley Scott. And then Fincher later goes on to work with Jordan's son, Jeff Cronin with. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's this, there's a lesson about picking your team and about the people that are going to be on your side and the people that you can really communicate with and that you're like simpatico with these movies you know, you never say that it's a, a Jeff Cronin with film. It's it's a David Fincher film. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that he can kind of dictate. I, I think Roger Deakins gets a lot of credit for the stuff that he shoots, no matter who it's for. Mm-hmm. I kind of think that Jeff Cronin with's best stuff is with Fincher, you know, notwithstanding Taylor Swift videos, I guess. Mm-hmm. A, at any rate, yeah, I think that's kind of my takeaway is... In order to make the most of your opportunity, you need to have your core group of people. And at this point, Fincher was still building that. And you kind of see what happened. Like, it's not entirely under his control. Later, he goes on to form the world around him, such as it needs to be to support his filmmaking process. And that's why he can be so exacting uh, as he is. I mean, once again, this is a dude that pushes technology forward in order to get shots. So mm-hmm. I think there's some, there's something in there about following that purity of vision and realizing what you have to do to get it done. Oh, definitely. I, I appreciate the pushback on Cause I think the auteur theory is like li- very limited and I, yes. I, it's very easy to fall into and just say it's this person's film. And I do that a lot. And I was doing that, but you are right. I mean, you look at the people like I always look at Spielberg and like he cultivates a crew. Like he's, worked on everything with uh Janusz Kaminski in the past like I just want to get this right this time in the past two decades since the lost right. world or since Schindler's List it's been him the, you get a, a, a good collaboration there like you were he works with Michael Kahn and you, you know he works with the same editor that works with John Williams obviously and uh, now he works with Mark Rylance and everything and it's great right. but you get people that are great at their job you get people that can work on that level with you and you just you keep working with them and that's how you refine your craft and that's how you get better at it. You don't have to focus on all these other elements because you know that you're confident that they can take care of it. It's a mark of wisdom to seek out collaborators that compliment you. And I think that's something that he, like you mentioned with his later movies, he got very good at. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, uh, Kaminsky. Mm-hmm. Spielberg's preferred cinematographer for the past couple, couple decades here. Mm-hmm. And 
I just this is one of my favorite little pieces of trivia. Mm-hmm. What was uh, Kaminsky's big credit before working on Schindler's List? Oh man, um, I thought you were gonna ask me like what's his like directorial debut or something because I think I know no. that one. No, that, no, that would be too easy. Uh, or maybe you were gonna ask me like I don't know because he did like Funny People, which is like not a movie that you would like. It doesn't look like a Janusz Kaminski movie. <laughs> That's just a good cinematographer. No, I don't know. I'm just I'm stalling. What is it? Okay, uh, two years before he did Schindler's List. He made the vanilla ice vehicle cool as ice. Yeah. No, that's, uh, I mean, there you go. Yeah, that's, oof. Ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) I I like to think that Spielberg was watching cool as ice on the back lot one day and went, you know who I need to to really capture the essence of my uh, Nazi Holocaust Mm -hmm. (laughs) epic? Is this guy, this this cameraman, this cinematographer? Well, it's someone who he was on the front lines of a, a cultural holocaust, a holocaust of taste. I'm just kidding. That's wow, that's too far. Wow. <laughs> uh, also, uh, Kaminsky was married to Holly Hunter. So I didn't know that. Wait, did he share a house with the Cohen brothers? Because they like had that thing where they shared a house around like Raising Arizona, and like Kathy Bates was there. Holly no, no, Hunter. No, this, this was this is way later. Oh, damn, that would have yeah. been so cool. I mean, he hasn't worked with the Coen brothers, obviously, but right. I've never seen Cool as Ice. I shouldn't talk shit about it. Oh my gosh! Okay, for <laughs> for uh, both pickle here. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I, if anyone doesn't know, uh, I sometimes refer to Andrew as pickle. It's a trait that I picked up from Edgar Wright films, and when he is referred to in my household, he is normally referred to as pickle. So everyone out there uh, listening. And also call him Pickle. Yep. We just, we just lost a bunch of uh, <laughs> listeners. Yes. At any rate, I would recommend that everybody watch Cool as Ice, but Riff Tracks. Okay. Just don't even wa- watch the original film. The, the Riff Tracks guys do a great job, and it is incredibly entertaining. And it's very colorful, and uh, there's a lot of movement going on. So it's definitely a thing you could watch. So I think that's a perfect segue into our... <laughs> Advanced studies section. Yes. Yep. So what is your advanced studies pick? Okay. So for this particular movie, you know, I've talked about the fact that this kind of hit me at the right age and at the right level of uh, teenage ennui or angst. Uh, I realize those are two different concepts, but at the, the right level of like soul searching, to crack my head open for science fiction films that really explore more things than just blowing shit up like happened in aliens. Right. So my movie is actually a film that I got to watch. I didn't, I haven't seen it until this last week and it is Andre Tarkovsky's stalker from 1979, which is, I mean, in essence, so picture a Bergman film, but made by Tarkovsky and it has a lot of science fiction instead of more fantastical elements. I feel like that's not a Bergman film at all. Oh, but you, you have <laughs> sitting around in very, very beautiful or interesting tableaus having mm-hmm. uh, uh, existential arguments with each other. Well, in that sense, okay, I see where you're there going. There you go. Yeah, okay. That's the... <laughs> yeah, I, have a, I saw Stalker in college, and I actually, I thought I was, I was considering revisiting it because you had mentioned that you were going to talk about it, but... Uh-huh. It's three hours, and it's coming out on Blu-ray soon. And I do want to, 
I do want to buy the Blu-ray and watch it that way, even though it is on Filmstruck. Yes. And I highly recommend getting Filmstruck, even though I never use it, knowing that I can watch anything on there if I want to. <laughs> they have a great selection of a lot of stuff that Criterion didn't put out. Anyway, this wasn't a paid advertisement. I just like their product. Yeah. Yes, Stalker is incredible. It's a great comparison because, I mean, you have these, it's like three men, right? Alone yeah. in a in a weird, strange world. Yeah, it's like they're just uh, they're traversing a, a strange landscape and 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 uh, ruminating on its mortality. I guess. Yeah, and yeah. and and the meaning of life and mm-hmm. um, why they are doing what they're doing, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I find a lot of comparisons between that and I feel like the the intent of Alien Three mm-hmm. and Fincher later has gone on to be much more precise and he allows shots to play out a lot more. Like, like I said, alien three doesn't feel like it's edited like a venture film. He has a great combination of super fast stylish cutting mm-hmm. with long shots that are almost upsetting, especially his last few films, I guess from Zodiac on mm-hmm. he'll make you sit with something that's practically unbearable. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Even in, uh, in gone girl, which we could, talk about maybe book adaptations or something at some point yeah but the the fact that he frames all these shots uh setting you up for i don't know what looks like it could be a hallmark version of one of these kind of dramas but everything is just a little bit off Mm -hmm. it's so fantastic so i feel like he's still not as out there as tarkovsky is i mean there's I don't know that there's anything in Fincher's filmography, any shots that go for four or five minutes like there are in this film. But I feel like a lot of these themes and a lot of the techniques are kind of uh, brought down to a more tolerable level for, you know, mainstream American audiences. Oh, yeah. Well, Zodiac was the first thing I thought of with like the scene where they're at the picnic and the first like. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, good God, when is he going to cut away? Yes. Uh, stalker so you know you kind of have to understand the from from my brain the comparison of getting all these philosophical ideas from alien 3 where the first two films seem a little more pat in what they're presenting to me mm-hmm. alien 3 seems to raise a bunch of questions and f- for me personally it led into more i guess thoughtful and philosophical science fiction stuff you know film wise it would be s- 2001 is what mm-hmm. most people would probably be familiar with. And I think that Stalker is much more, it's a lot closer to Alien as far as its pacing and its deliberateness. Mm-hmm. But like I said, these the guys in this film, there's several scenes of them like sitting around smoking and staring out of windows and having these conversations <laughs> with each other. Mm-hmm. Like I said, about the, the meaning of life and uh, where do they fit in and this kind of quest that they're on, like what does it even mean and why are they doing it? And I don't know, there's definitely for me a thematic link here between that and, you know, you have Charles S. Dutton and Ripley having kind of the same conversations and Charles mm-hmm. Dance and Ripley having the same conversations. That's a, a, a thing. I always view genre films. I, I think they're better when it's a metaphor for something else. And these movies kind of strip away the metaphor and it's these people asking the exact same questions, but they're in these heightened circumstances. You don't even have to read into it. They're telling you like, no, I'm going into this battle and I'm wondering why I should even be alive or why should I even fight this battle? 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know, there's like a great mixture of heady science fiction and this surreal nature that's going on with these very real, you know, kind of internal struggles that I feel like anybody could deal with on any given day. And there's something about that, that it catches my brain in just the right way that I can relate to these things. And I hope a lot of other people can too. Stalker is kind of like a twilight zone episode writ large. It, you know, it's much Mm -hmm. more deliberate, much more kind of grand in its presentation, but it seems like it wants to get at a lot of these ideas and thoughts about what does it mean to be a good person? And what does it mean to be a person with purpose? Mm -hmm. As soon as I got done watching it, I kind of wanted to go back and watch Solaris again because I love that film so much it just really puts me in this weird headspace of wanting to sit and consider life. <laughs> yeah. According to Wikipedia, just so people have a frame of reference that they're not familiar. And of uh-huh. course, Wikipedia is always right. Yep. Stalker has, it's 163 minutes long and it contains 142 shots. So okay. that should give you an idea of what you're looking for. But I, I will say like, it sounds punishing, <laughs> But it's really not. And if, if you've never experienced, I guess, slow cinema is sort of a catch-all term that mm-hmm. starts with Tarkovsky. He wrote a book about filmmaking called Sculpting in Time. Or he has a quote. Did he write a book or is that a quote? Uh, I'm terrible. Uh, I, I think he wrote remember. a There's a book. I don't know. Anyway, he, he said that cinema is sculpting in time. His films are a really great illustration of that, especially because you think it's going to seem long. But as you, as you go through... you. If you're, if you're open to it and receptive to it, you sink into the rhythms to the point that time moves a little bit faster, even though the movie's theoretically moving slower, like it's cutting less, but you right. get used to it. And it's immensely pre- pleasurable. I don't really know how, I mean, it's a great experience if you can get it. Uh, Bailatar is another filmmaker like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stalker and, and Solaris that you mentioned, those are both much more, much more uh, accessible but in comparison to like uh, Workmeister Harmonies by Bellatar or something like that, or the seven hour Satan Tango. I feel like even within like slow cinema, there's a lot of different areas that you could delve into. Mm-hmm. Stalker works. Actually, another film that it reminded me of a lot was both uh, 12 Monkeys and the the film that it's based on, Le Jete. Uh, yeah. That it it just has this tone of it just sucks you into what's going on. And I don't know, it it managed to have, for me, the same feeling as watching like a French New Wave film, even though uh, cutting wise, they're at the opposite ends of the spectrum. Oh, but definitely. There's something, there's something about the way that it's presenting this kind of fantastical world that was just, I was just drawn into it. And I personally really uh, have probably a strong distaste for something being like naturalistic. I think that idea goes out the window as soon as you're pointing a camera at something and making editorial decisions. And this feels purposeful and almost this in almost the same way it's pushing aesthetically in the opposite direction, Mm -hmm. but it is using cinema in a very specific way. And rather than using editing, it's using shot construction and tableaus and camera movement Mm -hmm. to, to help tell this story. If you like a lot of the ideas that are presented in Alien 3 or the the idea of your, your science fiction rubbing up against your philosophy class, go into this film maybe seeking some of that same stuff. And maybe the, the, it's kind of like stinking your vegetables in, right? Like 
you, you'll get to learn a little bit more about how films work in totally different ways despite being so like kind of also desolate and gross it's frequently beautiful mm-hmm. and very striking like just the, the composition and and the blocking are immaculate it's not a world that i really want to live in but i kind of want to go sink into the film again and like andrew said it's on filmstruck mm-hmm. you know for i can't remember how much the filmstruck i did the yearly thing which is like 100 bucks but i think it's like 8.99 a month or something like that I don't care if okay, I'm so wrong. For, just I don't care if I'm wrong. Just go get it. <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, nine, nine, ten bucks a month, whatever it is. I can be wrong about this. <laughs> you can you can watch a ton of Criterion films, and they've even got special features and stuff up there. It's mm-hmm. just been well worth it for me. The the few times that I've even that I've visited it. So that's that's kind of mine. I I went the esoteric, you know, teenager discovering discovering uh, philosophy route. Mm-hmm. What's what's your uh, advanced studies for this week? So I think we both picked. Very, very strange companion films for Alien okay. 3. Yes. Not that, I mean, they both have good reasons behind them. I was trying to find something. It was this or Only God Forgives, but I didn't want to watch Only God Forgives again. <laughs> I wasn't in the mood. It's a great movie, but it's it, it, it's a it's a meal. Anyway, I picked uh, Killing Them Softly, the 2012 film by Andrew Dominic. I really liked this movie when it came out and then revisiting it. A lot of the problems I had kind of fell away. I, it, it's a very angry film, and I pick <laughs> it to pair with Alien Three specifically because uh, I, 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 it, it sprang to mind because of the tone and because of the reception. Because this is a movie that did not was not well received uh, by like the public. And I mean, I think it got decent reviews critically. It didn't get great reviews, and they, it wasn't uniform in any in either direction. I don't think. But it definitely, it was one of those movies that got like a really bad cinema score, which usually uh-huh. means I'm going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, let, let's uh, wait till we get to the Richard Kelly. Uh, right. Like the, like the box got a really bad cinema score. And that's, I love that movie. So this is another one. This is along those lines. So just, uh, but I will say, I think this movie got a bad rap at the time for very specific reasons that I think when you watch it today, it's a lot clear, like it works a lot better because it seems, it seems a lot more uh, prescient than it did at the time. But I'll get into that in a minute. But what I want to get into is because everyone's like, why the hell would you talk about this movie in comparison to Alien Three? And the reasons yeah, are, I'm excited for you to talk about it, but I don't know why you would. So because it's a, it's a film set in modern America, America on the eve of the uh, 2008 presidential election, and it's a. I believe it's Louisiana set. I think it's it's set in it's set in an Amer- uh, sort of nondescript. I mean, it, it just run down American town. It's about these guys who knock over a card game, and they think it's like a they'll they'll get away with the crime because it's like it's got a foolproof uh, plan. They were knocking over a card game run by a guy who knocked over his own card game once and got away with it, and so they think they'll he'll get blamed again and they'll get off scot-free anyway. Right. So it's all about these criminals and it's like a noir. And then Brad Pitt plays a character who comes in and is essentially tasked with cleaning up this mess and figuring out what happened as it unfolds. It's like a sort of by the numbers crime gone wrong, sort of Coen brothers. E like people in over their head, but the tone is much more serious, a very bleak and despairing kind of film. So tonally, it was one of the first things I thought of when I was thinking of, something along the lines of Alien 3, because it presents this world, and coincidentally, it's also a world almost exclusively populated by men. 
I believe there's one female character in this, and it's a prostitute. Basically, it's just these. They're men who behave. They're just. They're. They're. They. They're very base. They're very like. They're driven by the most basic needs. Like they need to get a fix, or they need to get. You know, they need to get laid, or they need to get paid. You know, but they. You know, they want to get rich quick without really working for it, or you know, they're all kind of like on like the the the, the outside of society of civilized society. And uh, basically, it's just a vision of the world that's very despairing and bleak, and it ultimately, it's just gross a little bit. Like, especially Ben Mendelsohn, his character is greasy the whole time. Like, you know, he talks frankly about, like, sex or, like, fucking whatever. Like, it's, they're, they're, everybody's very coarse, and it's just gross, and you kind of get... So you can, maybe you kind of get... If you haven't seen it, maybe you're kind of getting a picture why people hated it. Um, it's, it's very aggressively unpleasant. And I think it, you know, in a, that in that way, it's similar to Alien Three. Although, yeah, I mean, yeah, I would say in that way, it's similar to Alien Three. I can leave it there. What revisiting it was very interesting because I think if you watch it now, when it when it came out, it came out in 2012, right when either right before or right after Obama was reelected, and basically the whole movie is structured very clearly. Like there's this crime story going on, but it's very very specifically hitting these beats. Like there's political speeches in the background of every scene on the radio or on TV. Uh, there's George W. Bush talking about the recession, Barack Obama giving a speech talking about change we can believe in. And the, the movie very pointedly ends on the night he's elected and very pointedly refutes that election as anything meaningful. Right. And I can see why people hated that. <laughs> uh, when I, I kind of did a little write-up for it on Letterboxd and I just said like, it's like a canary in a coal mine now where it's like, this is a movie about a, 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 an America that doesn't see change. Like, these people, like, like they vote, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, we're, things are going to change, things are going to change. Not for these people, you know? And it, it was very, like, interesting to see. It's like, I don't mean to get too political, but, I mean, it's, it, you know, they vote, you know, these are people, a lot of people who voted, there were plenty of people who did vote for Obama who later voted for Donald Trump. Uh, because they voted for change, and then they gave it eight years, and they didn't see the change they wanted to see. And I think this movie is simply saying, like, you know, in the society, you know, money talks, like money kind of rules everything. And if you're not in that, you know, if, if that's not, if you're not in that business, if you're not successful enough, then just things aren't going to change for you, no matter what. Right. It's just, it's just very mean and in a way like keeping up the comparison to alien three it's a despairing very uh you know not necessarily capitalism you know run amok but it's just like everybody has a purpose everybody has a you know if, when you when you serve your purpose you're done like it's very very practical pragmatic there's no consideration for like emotion in this scenario brad pitt would be the xenomorph i guess <laughs> i don't know uh but yeah I, it's a great movie i think and well worth a revisit, even if you hate it, especially if you hated it. But uh, yeah, that's my pick. <laughs> uh, I I definitely think it's worth a revisit as well. Also because it is uh, based on a book written by George V. Higgins, who who also wrote. Do you know? Do you know Andrew? The you Friends know? of Eddie Coyle. The Friends of Eddie Coyle, one of my very favorite movies of all time. And also, mine as well. Also, an incredibly nihilistic crime film. Yes. So there, there is kind of an all, all of these, the idea of you are looking for meaning while circling the drain. What do you do in the, the, the dying days of either uh, the, the thing that you have pledged your loyalty to 
or when you're faced with, you know, the possible absence of your own uh, God figure or religion. Mm-hmm. And it could be a God out there, you know, in the, the cosmos somewhere or the almighty dollar. And, yeah. <laughs> which I do think killing them softly has one of the, the greatest last lines of any film. Oh, absolutely. Hang on. Yeah. I've got it somewhere. Hang on. <laughs> it's so good. Yes. Because he starts it off by saying something like, uh, tell me we're part of like some global community. And then he has this like great delivery. Like, don't make me laugh. <laughs> it's like, this is America. And in America, you're on your own. America's not a country. It's just a business. Now fucking pay me. Yes. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. And you know, once again, it's I, I think we had it in two different directions, mm-hmm. but these are it's we both uh I think encapsulated things that we love about these films. And you know, killing them softly, if if you kind of once again like the the nihilistic uh, approach <laughs> and like you said, Coen Brothers films. It's actually, I think, if you would watch that back to back with um, Blood Simple, mm-hmm. which you know starts with kind of a similar rant. Uh, I, I yeah. think there's there's probably a uh, a good comparison to be made there. Which I don't know. We'll, we'll have to figure out if we can uh, reuse advanced studies and and tweak them, or if we just wind up doing an entire episode about. <laughs> the movies that we talked about because that's kind of where i wound up with tarkovsky because yeah i just i just want to keep swimming in these very surrealistic lush places that he puts you or grotesque places uh, depending on you know where in the film it is yeah i, I feel like you've got a, a a lot to consider there's a lot to chew on here uh, in alien 3 both within the film itself and with the the concept of filmmaking and artistic license and you know artistic kind of what do you owe to yourself and your the the public yeah i mean it's uh i think alien 3 and we haven't talked too much about uh about the ending here but i guess thinking about killing them softly especially like the the corporatized element of alien 3 where they are trying to weaponize xenomorph they they want to you know, which later comes to a little bit to fruition in Alien Resurrection. Spoilers. But uh, <laughs> basically, they even send, I guess the, he says he's the prototype uh, model, the, 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 that Bishop, the android, was modeled after. But you, you don't know if you can trust him. I mean, he at least seems to be human because he's he bleeds, you know, red blood instead of uh, milk and yogurt and oatmeal, I think is what Lance Henderson said that, that stuff was. Ugh. Oh, yeah, he said he got so sick because it spoiled. And he was like sick for, yeah. Anyway, that's a long story. I think that, that there's an interesting element of that there. The Alien series is definitely anti-corporate greed, I think. Because, yeah, I think pretty consistently throughout the whole series. And it begins with the very first one. Yeah. Uh, if a corporation could send robots to do their bidding and didn't have to hire people, they would. <laughs> I mean, I, I also think the idea that uh, these films are all because of capitalist greed yeah um, probably like unleashes havoc upon just all sorts of people because of uh of greed and this the need to ever expand and get better and bigger and the fact that the alien is the ultimate killing machine mm-hmm. and i don't even know how they think they're going to weaponize it it's that part is utterly absurd when i <laughs> I look at 
and I don't want to get political here, but when I look at modern American life and I realize that a lot of times we don't have steps two and three. We have step one, hey, get the alien. Step four, kill all the enemies with it. We'll figure out two and three as we go. That's kind of, that's kind of <laughs> what it feels like. Yeah, they sort of approach it a little bit in Alien Resurrection, but they don't get all the way to like, oh, here's how we're going to make them soldiers. Right. Yeah, it's sort of the uh, long lost uh, promise of what uh, Jurassic Park 4 could have been if they'd had uh, super intelligent military dinosaurs, which was a plan at one point. That could have been an interesting exploration of uh, corporate greed run amok. I think they're, it's a little easier to weaponize a velociraptor maybe if you give it a human brain and uh, some clothes and a machine gun. Because <laughs> in the first two films, it's it's more like they just want to study the creature a little bit, or they like admire that they like don't know anything about it, so they want to learn more. And I think it's specifically this one where they actually talk about weaponizing it, unless I'm mistaken. No, I think you're right. I mean, it's, which follows suit. I mean, it's like a train of thought, and like it makes sense. Right. But, well, yeah, I'm trying to think of what else. If there's anything we haven't covered about Alien Three that's important, because I feel like. We may have elided some things or some concepts. I'm trying to think. I mean, I think we definitely did, but like I said, it's a, <laughs> it's a super meaty film. Yes. If you were willing to, uh, like you and I, I think that we like we like sloppy films mm-hmm. that have that swing for the fences. Oh, absolutely. I think that we would take someone who goes for the home run over uh, slugging percentage as far as films go. <laughs> Well, and, you know, in fantasy baseball, too, but we can talk yeah. about that offline. <laughs> Oof. Oh, I felt so good going into this weekend, and it just hurt. Oh, uh, man. There's a lot to chew on here. I would, I definitely say, I think we both would say the assembly cut is the way to go, especially if you haven't yes. seen it before. I would not even bother with the theatrical cut until after, unless you're curious to watch it after the assembly cut. I think the assembly cut's best foot forward for now until... Maybe one day David Fincher will come back and do it. Uh, one uh, one note that I think is interesting, apparently David Fincher has been in talks or seriously in talks to uh, direct the sequel to World War Z. Yes. It's his first time since Alien 3 making a sequel to a major blockbuster, making any kind of blockbuster, really. I mean, he's made, I mean, Benjamin Button had an enormous budget, but it wasn't a blockbuster. I mean, it, you know. It involved a lot of technology, but it wasn't supposed to make a billion dollars. World War Z two, on the other hand, would be expected to do that. So yeah. I think it's very interesting that he's coming. He's a, that he's even considering doing it. And uh, if he does do it, I would uh, be very interested to see what results. And uh, I think it would be a very enlightening companion piece, whatever comes out of that, to this. So I hope it happens. <laughs> I do too. I, I always like when uh, my artsy directors get into uh the the blockbuster or kind of mainstream game i think it's super interesting to see that push and pull david lynch yada 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 we oh dune. On. we can talk about dune oh yeah Ooh. and the differences between dune and the rest of his filmography and then the straight story <laughs> like it's okay yeah that's that is for a different time i would suggest apart from our film suggestions like i said checking out the video series every frame of painting mm-hmm. by tony Zhao, i believe mm-hmm. and also checking out the uh the directors series which is a super in-depth look at uh, different directors i believe each series is on it's on vimeo mm-hmm. they're like four and five parts long each part is like between 12 minutes and half an hour 
something like that. And it's a, a really great deep dive into different directors filmographies and kind of the, the whole process that they go through. There's a David Fincher series. It's five parts. Mm-hmm. The, the first one called baptism by fire <laughs> covers uh, the making of alien three a little bit and how it informed his future decisions. I don't know if you've got a, sp- a couple spare hours, uh, it's broken up into episodes, so you can, you can tackle it 20 minutes or half an hour at a time. But uh, personally, I got sucked into the director series, and I, I don't know, actually, the, the person who... The username is Raccord. That's R-A-C-C-O-R-D. Okay. So I'm not sure. Yeah, oh, that's Cam- the username Cameron, on there. Cameron Bile or Beale, perhaps? Bale? I... Are we just I making feel... shit up now? What are we doing? <laughs> no, no, no. no. It's, I, I see people referring to this person. Okay. You know, in regards to the series, but uh, on the series, uh, uh, Cameron has covered um, Stanley Kubrick, David Fincher, the Coen brothers, Christopher Nolan. I think Paul Thomas Anderson mm-hmm. got a series. Yeah, like it's fantastic stuff. And if you really want to nerd out, you know, spend a couple hours uh, uh, checking out that. I think we probably both love video essays more than we should. So that's always going to be high on my list. I think there, well, and I think it's telling that there's, because I just remembered there's another one about Alien 3. Specifically, it's called uh, The Unloved. It's a oh, series yes, yes, on yes. .com, uh done by a Scout Tafoya. And uh, the very first entry, all the way back from 2013, was on Alien 3. And uh, it's, um, th- that's only like seven or eight minutes. And it's just a great, it's just, he basically tackles films that like this. You know, he, he did one on The Village. He did one on John Carter. Movies that I love, <laughs> they're, def- they're definitely flawed or they were perceived as uh, disappointments. And he sort of goes about trying to at least reclaim or re-examine what is actually worth studying about them. So I think that's very, that whole series is very good. I haven't seen each and every entry, but the Alien 3 one I would highly recommend as well. And we'll link to all of these, so don't freak out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I also, I would recommend The Unloved as a series. It's, I feel like people might be more familiar, um, and this is still pretty niche, but with uh, Nathan Rabin's My Year of Flops yes. uh, series that he did for AV Club, and they, they turned into maybe a couple books. I know it's at least one book that he did with all his case files. Uh, that's Rabin is a little more glib. Um, still, like, some fantastic writing about films that are considered, you know, not to be worth your while, but uh, the unloved is a little more um, scholarly in its approach, and more. Yeah, I think uh, the 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 thing that's great about Nathan Rabin's series, I'm glad you brought it up, is it uh, he basically designates things. It's like a failure or a secret success or a fiasco. Yes, and a, a if it's a secret success, you should check it out immediately or whenever you know when you get to it. If it's a fiasco, it's amazing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, it's a very good designation for for films that are just completely batshit. Uh, like uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, like Southland Tales. Yes, which I would also call a secret secret success personally. But and then he, you know failures are the ones that typically you could avoid, or the ones that right. he usually gets the snarkiest about, and deservedly so. Um, so it's a uh, it's a very interesting. I think that's a good way to approach it. I, I one other thing I'd like to mention: film crit Hulk on Birth Movies Death. Yes. And he uh, wrote an article a while back, I think maybe even before he was on that site, called, uh, the, the headline was just like, Never Hate a Movie. Oh, yeah, yes, that is fantastic. 
I love that ethos. And that's kind of, and I've heard that too. Uh, I, I think someone, it was like a secondhand anecdote on a podcast that I heard. They said like, uh, what's, you know, you know, someone worked with Steven Spielberg and they said, what's like his secret is like, he loves everything. <laughs> like he loves every movie. And I'm like, that makes right. perfect sense. Yep. <laughs> and that's, I, if anything, I think we, and Josh, you and I have discussed this like offline, like it's kind of our goal with this is to kind of just preach being receptive to a movie, evaluating each film on its own terms. There are going to be some films that are just terrible, but yes. most films you can find more, more films than you'd think you can find something worth liking about them. And I think it's, it's uh, a series like the unloved or something like my year flops is a very good entry, like entryway uh, to that kind of scholarly film study of uh, lesser regarded films. Right. And uh, I think, you know, first and foremost, we are fans. Yes. We are fans to the extent that we both work in, in media as, I mean, it's been an extension of our fandom, essentially. Like, you know, not just this podcast, but kind of our offline, real-life adult lives. It's kind of the, the path that being fans has let us down to some extent. I mean, with both sports and storytelling, like... It's it's kind of where we're at. So I always think it's a it's a better idea to be open and willing to discuss something than to shit on it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end it. I was just gonna say like there, there's definitely there's more to gain from being open to something and being let down, but understanding why you were let down than there is to just going in to be snarky. Yes. Just this is just a long way. This is like a hundred minutes of us saying Twitter ruined. Criticism. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I really hate the snarky Insta posts about movies. Yep. Even when they're right, it doesn't make it. It doesn't make it right. Nope. <laughs> nope. I I concur 100. So I think uh, I think we yeah I think we've reached a good conclusion. Rest assured, Alien Three and both of the films we talked about as our advanced studies are all actually I think good movies, not uh, movies that need to be embraced for being. For for not being good, <laughs> you, no, know? you don't have to worry about any kind of so bad it's good levels or anything. It's right. They're all they're all worth your your watch. And yeah, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. We will return next episode with a discussion of uh, Alien Resurrection. There you go. <laughs> that's the that's the next one we're gonna do. I was trying I to think of like we will return in men with the golden gun kind of deal. I was gonna make a joke. Uh -huh. but, uh, uh -huh. I like this better. I like being just telling them, just saying what we're actually doing. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Alien Resurrection. Uh, we I watched the theatrical cut. So just as a rev, I didn't watch both versions of this one because the director even said he prefers the theatrical. So okay, the deleted scenes are interesting. So if they're in the longer cut. That's for next time. Yeah, well, you, you, you got to work ahead a little bit because <laughs> yeah. you didn't have a freaking three-hour movie that requires you to uh, watch parts of it multiple times to really get what's going on as your advanced studies like I did. So Hey, that's that's one of the good things about Killing Them Softly. It's only 91 minutes before credits. So uh, yeah. it is lean like a film noir from the 50s. It is good. On that note, you should check us out on social media. You can follow me at aford88 on Twitter. That's aford88. And uh, please don't hesitate to email us at empathymachinepodcast at gmail.com with thoughts, responses, comments, questions, suggestions, 
and or desperate pleas for us to stop. We also are on iTunes now, so yay, rate, review us. By the time this posts, we should be lousy with reviews at this point and uh, good five-star ratings. So yeah, we, we will, appreciate we'll be... you. Thank. Well, I just want to thank you for doing that. We will be hip deep in them, I can tell. <laughs> so you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Spartacus. It's S-P-A-R-T-I-C-K-E-S. Yes, it's a it's a movie pun. You can check out the podcast on iTunes. I, I hopefully, maybe we'll get it up on Stitcher and other services if we can figure those things out. Mm-hmm. You can check out links to my work at the79hawks.com. That is the79hawks.com. Uh, you can see my cinematography and editing and... Uh, different things that I do over there. Empathy Machine Podcast has been a 79 Hawks production. And, and we I'm, don't have a catchphrase yet. I'm Tom Bodette. We'll leave the light on for you. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs>